Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Alexandra Carpino joins the show again. On July 7th, 2021, Professor Carpino joined the show and we had a conversation about the ancient Etruscans. Today, Dr. Carpino is back on the show and we're going to zoom in on that previous chat and we're going to speak about what scholars know about the Etruscans in the 6th century BCE, so the 500s BCE. Dr. Carpino is professor in the Department of Comparative Cultural Studies at Northern Arizona University, based in the U.S. She has written numerous publications over her career, including co-editing and contributing a chapter to the book, A Companion to the Etruscans, which was published by Wiley. And Dr. Carpino joins the show today from the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Alexandra. Thank you. Happy to be here. It's good to connect with you again, Alexandra, as usual. So to create sufficient background and context, and I probably asked um, a similar question last time, but I think it's a good place to start in this conversation today. And I don't want to circumscribe this question to a particular century, although we're speaking about the 6th century BCE today. To create sufficient background and context for the conversation, then we'll work our way more into the details in that 6th century, uh, Alexandra. Who were the Etruscans? So if we think about the Etruscans and we think about Italy, and, you know, the ancient Italian uh, peninsula, a lot of diverse ethnic groups, you know, lived on that peninsula long before Roman domination. And the Etruscans were one of these. And they mainly occupied the land between the Tiber and Arno rivers. So if you think of Tuscany today, that is sort of the heartland of um, Etruscan civilization. But they also expanded at different points, especially in the period that we're going to talk about today, the 6th century, uh, with influence and settlements on the Adriatic coast, uh, south of Venice, and um, north up into the Po River Valley, and even south into the Bay of Naples. And so they are one of the most important uh, civilizations um, on the Italian peninsula before Roman domination. And we wanted to... Have, start have this have this episode focus in on an early century when there becomes more substantive evidence in the records to have a constructive conversation for uh, anywhere from you know thirty five to uh, just under an hour in in length today. Why did you suggest the sixth century BCE inside of that context? I suggested it because when we think about the Etruscans, when many um, just sort of, you know, general population, you know, individuals in general or scholars think about the Etruscans, this is the period that is most often associated with Etruscan cultural identity. It's the period in which we really see Etruscan um, civilization reaching um, a height in many different um, contexts. And it's a period that we often call the archaic period of Etruria, you know, using a term borrowed uh, from Greece. But it's really a very important period, um, you know, that is then followed by the fifth century, a period most scholars see as a kind of crisis. And so it's, it's a period that follows the seventh, which is another period of um, great growth and expansion 
um, of the Etruscans. And so it's really a period in which we have lots of different information and a lot of material culture that seems to really define who the Etruscans were. So in these... So that's why I picked it, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, 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 makes sense. So in these 500s, um, the 6th century BCE, what is the types of evidence that scholars rely on to understand who the Etruscans were? So we have mainly archaeological evidence uh, that comes from uh, many, many different types of um, sites. And the interesting thing, of course, about the Etruscans is that they were an urban culture. And during the um, 6th century, we see um, a great expansion of their urban community, so a lot of growth. We also have literary evidence that's much later in date that, that helps kind of flesh out the picture of this particular period. Uh, for example, the Roman uh, historian Livy gives us a lot of different uh, information, including, for example, a list of what he considered at his time uh, the most important Etruscan cities. And if we compare what Livy says with the archaeological record, we do see that many of the cities that he mentions along the coast and inland were also sites of incredible growth um, and the production of art and trade during this particular period. So just to give you a sense of some of the cities that I might be talking about today along the coast, uh, you know, sort of close to Rome, what we would call uh, Southern Etruria, we have the site of Cervetidi, uh, we also have Tarquinia and Volci and Vettalonia. And then more inland, we have a site quite close to Rome, for example, Veii, and then other cities like Orvieto, Cusi, Cortona, Perugia, Arezzo, and Volterra. And these are names that people are probably familiar with because they're still occupied today in very important uh, cities, uh, urban centers uh, in Italy today. It's hard to judge kind of how big some of these places were, but, but in terms of population. But we do have some data uh, from archaeological evidence that gives us a sense of, of how large these cities were. Many of them were located you know, high on plateaus, um, in very, you know, sort of near uh, rivers and or along the coast. And like Veii, for example, we would think covered about 420 acres. Uh, Trivetti between 300 and 320 acres, and then on down, you know, Orvieto, which is a very distinctive city even today, up high up on cliffs, you know, about 200 um, acres. If you go to a city like Orvieto today and you walk from one end to another, it would take you about 30 minutes. So that gives you kind of an extent of of the size of some of these um, uh, cities. And what's important about the sixth century is that many of the developments that started in the seventh, you know, continue, but there are also many new uh, innovations and developments in the sixth that really um, make us understand that Etruscan culture at this time was a very dynamic urban culture. So they're the, really the first major urban civilization of Italy with developments starting in the sixth or the seventh, and then really taking off um, in the sixth. You'd mentioned um, some different places within Italy using modern day terminology, Tuscany, um, near Venice, Bay, Bay of Naples. 
is it is it fair to say that their geographic demarcation was spread out quite a bit on the peninsula? Especially in the sixth century, yes, we can say that. Um, and so uh, the Etruscans uh, were very um, lucky to live in a fertile area. So they had a lot of um, agricultural resources and also metal resources, which they traded. And so they were, um, you know, they were concentrated in this area that I mentioned between the Arno um, and the Tiber, but they expanded and created um, trading centers really all over uh, the peninsula. And what is important about the sixth century in particular is this is when they're expanding further to the east towards the Adriatic. Uh, they're creating um, new communities over there along the coast so that they have access to, you know, that part of the Mediterranean a little bit easier, uh, you know, instead of having to go all the way around uh, the peninsula. They expand up north into the Po River Valley, and they also have a very strong uh, presence um, settlements. I mean, they're not, um, you know, maybe little colonies, you know, in the south as well. So the extent really uh, in terms of, you know, where Etruscans are at this time goes from, you know, Campania all the way up to uh, the Po River Valley and then east towards the Adriatic. So it is, it is quite an, an expanse. And then the other thing to mention, especially during the, um, the sixth century, really, we have a lot of indicators of trading routes. You know, they were everywhere. We have Etruscan goods, one of the, the most important types of goods that give us evidence of, of how far their ships traveled is a particularly local type of pottery known as bucro. I mentioned this last time. It's a very distinctive Etruscan ware first produced in the seventh century, but then uh, continues to be produced in the sixth as well. It's made, uh, it's distinctively black, and it's made that way through firing by reducing the amount of oxygen uh, in the kiln. And this allows the um, clay to become black on the interior and on the surface. And there were major workshops in the 6th century in Chavetti, in Tarquinia, in Veii, in many different sites. And examples of Etruscan Bucuro have been found in archaeological excavations, you know, in the Rhone River Valley in France, in Spain, in Tunisia, where you are, in Greece, the Black Sea, in Egypt. So it really gives us, a, you know, this great uh, indicator of um, Etruscan trade back and forth in this sort of dynamic, you know, Mediterranean community that the Etruscans were part of in the 6th century. Dr. Evil Vandergraaff was on the show about a week ago. Um, about a week ago, the episode was published on Pompeii in the 6th century BCE and for everybody as a reference point, if anyone's going to look up that episode, I don't have that episode's uh, date immediately in front of me, but the recording with Dr. Carpino is occurring on August 19th, 2021, right now. So that that one that episode with Dr. Evil Vandergraaff is certainly findable on, on Pompeii um, in the 6th century. And he had brought up the that type of pottery as well. And what uh, I understood he was getting at was that uh, there's evidence that the Etruscans inhabited Pompeii at one point in time as well. So is it the is it the is it the pottery that predominantly links these different places that you cited 
as being inhabited by Etruscans, as Etruscans, um, or is there additional um, evidence that scholars rely on to say that these were, in this period of time, Etruscans, Etruscan people? Uh, we also have um, examples of metal goods. You know, the challenge with metal goods is that they can be melted down. And so sometimes we don't have, you know, a lot of them that are distinctively Etruscan in some of these, you know, sites across the Mediterranean. Um, but one of the, the types that we have that's particular, for example, in France is a particular type of beaked metal jug that was um, made by the Etruscans. And we see it, you know, in some of these, these communities um, in Southern France. And so that's another great um, indicator. We have trademark inscriptions. We have transport amphorae as well uh, that contained Etruscan products like wine that have been found in shipwrecks. And so there's just a lot of, we have some other types of inscriptions, you know, in Etruscan that are found etched into, for example, a Bucaro vessel that names an Etruscan, you know, in that particular place. And so we have, a, a, you know, this wide variety. It's not just the, the Bucaro itself, but a wide variety of evidence that really talks about this, this vibrant trading network of the Etruscans uh, in the sixth uh, century. And they were also, you know, of course, importing lots of artifacts as well. A lot of, uh, of Greek goods, especially, end up in Etruscan tombs at this particular time. So there was a, you know, a give and take between all of these different communities. Um, and it's in the, this period as well that the Etruscans are establishing the first emporia, which are sort of, um, you know, trading ports along the coast. And that's where we see a great mixing and mingling of cultures um, with artifacts that show not just, you know, Etruscans living there, but a variety of other people, such as Phoenicians and Greeks you know, all interacting and, and sort of producing, you know, especially in these port cities, just like you might think of today, uh, these very multicultural um, environments. So if someone was looking at a map and they're trying to identify territories that the Etruscans in this period had, had a hegemony over, are they seeing um, sp spots in different parts of the map, almost like a mosaic, um, and then in between that might be uh, no, no particular people have hegemony over or a different culture have hegemony over or, are, or is somebody seeing um, more what we're probably more familiar with in modern day times, block, blocks of land that would be a, a state if you know what I mean. So are they seeing more of these spots throughout a map that's almost a mosaic or are they seeing more large blocks of uh, land in the areas that you described? Definitely in the, in the area that is between the, the Tiber and the Arno, you know, that is a trusted territory. And the other thing, of course, that's important to keep in mind uh, about the Etruscans is they're not, you know, they're not a state. They're not a unified um, state. They're, you know, individual urban centers control the landscape around them. Um, but they all share a kind of common cultural tradition, common beliefs, common um, ideas about, you know, relative to 
certain types of uh, funerary rituals and things of that um, uh, sort. So if you were to look at the map of Tuscany, you would see, you know, um, uh, an urban area like, let's say, Tarquinia, um, you know, and spread out, and it would have under its control, like many uh, different uh, satellite communities um, around it, and then another one, and then another one. Um, and so the urban center with the landscape around it, um, and the coastal area, all under the control of a particular different um, uh, urban center. And I think that's why Libby sort of talks about these, you know, these, these major cities. And when we think of a city today, you know, we, we often think of a, you know, a very discreet uh, unit, but these are very broad areas with farmland, um, control of natural resources all around. So that area of Tuscany would have been, you know, firmly under Etruscan control. And during this period, it's also expanding, as I mentioned, you know, a little bit to the east. So a place in what is today Umbria, um, like Perugia, is becoming an Etruscan city as well uh, during this time. And then we have like what you were saying in terms of this, this idea of a mosaic, you know, outliers in these other areas where you have, um, you know, Etruscan settlements being um, created. So for example, um, Bologna is an Etruscan uh, city and was called Felsina in ancient times. But of course, we can't look at it. It's, you know, it's completely buried under the modern uh, city, but in a very strategic location. A lot of these places are in strategic locations because they control, you know, communication routes, trade routes up and down, east and west. Uh, but a community near Bologna that we can look at that was founded in, um, you know, sort of at the end of this uh, particular period is a place called Marzaboto. And there we, we see, you know, we actually have a city that was uh, destroyed by the Gauls in the fourth century. And so we can, you know, get a better sense of what an Etruscan city, you know, would have looked like starting in the sixth century, but more primarily uh, in the fifth. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of scholars have sort of described this place as a, as a kind of Etruscan Pompeii because it was abandoned and it's been heavily excavated. And it gives us a much better idea of what, you know, what a major colony or new city would have been like uh, in these areas, you know, farther to the north, not in the traditional area of what is Tuscany uh, today. So you can talk a little bit more about this city if you're, if you're interested, Marzaboto. Yeah, if it if it falls within the the sixth century, let's make sure uh, we we talked a bit about it in the episode. Um, before we before we go there, I want to clarify then because I think this is it's important what you brought up. So, in this in this century, at least in this century, um, when, when thinking about governance with the Etruscans, it should not be thought of as one unified state. It should be thought of as individual city states, but that they're linked through culture. Is that correct? Yeah, and we don't even really use the word, I mean, we're kind of wary about the word city-state. I mean, it, it seems like the only kind of term that we might be able to, um, you know, use to describe it. Um, but yes, that's kind of what we, what we have in mind. And we do have this reference, um, you know, a little bit later on in, the, the, in our sources, you know, coming from you know, primarily Livy and some of our other Latin sources about a kind of confederacy 
of the Etruscans, a confederacy of the major cities. Um, but even there, you know, there's not a, there's not a sense of unification. This, this idea that we get from, from Livy is that the major cities would come together annually at a sanctuary, a federal sanctuary for religious celebrations um, and games. And recent archeological work has suggested, it, that Libby gives us the name of this site, it was called the Phanum Voltumni, and excavations being conducted now near, um, outside Oviedo have uh, located what we think was actually uh, this site, which provides a you know, very important archeological backup uh, to the literary uh, evidence, but we still have a lot of questions, you know, about, um, you know, which cities belonged, you know, what happened, especially in the earlier periods, you know, before the fifth century. Um, but yes, what you're describing um, and mentioning is, is, is how we conceive of, of the relationship of these different communities uh, to each other. Um, and the communities is certainly a uh, very malleable term, and I use it a lot as well yeah. when, when speaking about different groups. But you did pique my interest. What is the what is the concern, or what's not known enough about this topic in this century to have some concern around the term city states? I am I am curious. Well, a city state is just a you know the problem with the Etruscans is that a lot of our information is later comes from Roman sources. And we, you know, to try to extrapolate and understand, especially issues related to uh, governance and control for these earlier periods, it's, it's very difficult. Like we, we're not really sure, for example, like were some of these communities ruled by tyrants, were they ruled by kings, were they ruled by, you know, uh, magistrates and priests? There's just a, there's just a lot of it is unclear. Um, even from the archaeological record. And so it's just one of those terms that, that is loaded. And so, you know, one uh, recent scholar, Karina Riva, has, you know, proposed sort of like the word, sort of the non-polis, the, the non-city-state, city-state, you know, idea where you don't want to just kind of, you know, um, get yourself into a hole by thinking of these communities in a particular way when they might have been constructed rather differently. Yeah, so what you're saying is there's not clear consensus that all these no. individual communities were even states. By, by, exactly. By, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the, the states, uh, states, communities, these different terms come up a lot, but I, I understand um, to use a term state, I, I think every, everyone would need to be clear on what the definition of a state is as well and have agreement around, around that. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, language. Um, by this century, is there evidence that there was a specific language that was distinct to the Etruscans? Oh, absolutely. So, um, you know, the Etruscans obviously have had a distinctive language. Um, it's a non-Indo-European language that they've had, you know, all through, you know, really, I mean, I suppose we, we just assume that that's what they spoke in this particular um, region. Writing starts uh, in the 7th century and continues obviously into the 6th and beyond. 
There are dialects of Etruscan, you know, different uh, versions of the alphabet in the north and the south, but it's, but they are, they are united. And that's one, you know, one way we can sort of talk about Etruscan cultural identity. They are united by their language. Um, and so that's a, that's a common thread, you know, through all of these different communities. And that is one way that, you know, we can recognize, you know, Etruscan um, artifacts, especially in these other areas, not only if they are distinctly cultural products like Bucro, so no other, um, you know, ancient civilization in the Mediterranean at this time produced this particular type of pottery, but then if there's, you know, the inscriptions, um, those also help us. And the Etruscans wrote, for example, even they would import, let's say, a uh, Greek vase. And if they wanted to dedicate it in a sanctuary, they would often, you know, write in Etruscan on it. Um, and so we know that even, you know, these products were owned by Etruscans, used by Etruscans um, as well. So yeah, language is a very important um, indicator you know, of, of culture and civilization uh, in this period. So they're, they're, they're totally literate, you know, at this time in terms of, you know, we don't know, you know, who or how and all the, the industries of it, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, not everybody uh, could read and write, but, uh, but it's, it's present in a, in a pretty strong way. Okay, so in the sixth century, it sounds like some of their writings survive. Is that is that right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Lots of inscriptions uh, survive. Um, you know, a lot of these inscriptions are um, on you know in tombs or on the exterior of tombs. You know, giving us the names of individuals. You know, very interestingly, um, other ones are, for example, they give us the name of deities that are dedicated, you know, that, that sanctuaries are uh, dedicated to. Um, a very interesting uh, phenomenon as well that starts in the sixth century is, um, you know, evidence that shows what we might call today different classes of people. You know, it's hard to use that word middle class because we don't quite understand you know exactly what what that meant in, in an Etruscan period but we have lots of evidence that shows that you know patrons of art and architecture monumental tombs or tombs in general aren't just you know the wealthiest of the wealthy you know the elite um, but people who might have been merchants or who might have been manufacturers or craftspeople and we see this, for example, in um, one of the cemeteries, for example, at Oviedo, where you have the names of the first owner of a tomb uh, inscribed on the exterior of the tomb. And these names really give us a sense of how, in this particular cemetery, you don't just have Etruscans uh, being buried, but you have people from Umbria, you have people, even there's a Celtic name, you know, so you have people who might have been traders or merchants from other areas who are settling there among the Etruscans um, and this, this very multicultural uh, community uh, being created. And these are tombs that are, uh, we call them cube tombs. And so they're much smaller. They're also organized in rows along orthogonal streets. And that introduces another very important um, feature of Etruscan urban development 
in this period, and that is the, um, the grid plan or the orthogonal plan uh, for the laying out of parts of cemeteries and even cities, especially new cities uh, in this particular period. The so writing is important, and then, you know, within that scheme, we see some of these other very distinctive elements of culture um, emerging. Is there any consistency in the materials and, and processes that they used to build their urban centers? Well, it's an impossible question to answer because especially um, um, most of the major urban centers, you know, we don't have because the modern cities are still there above them. And so the best place that we can look for, you know, evidence of how um, urban centers might have looked is at, you know, sites that have been that have been abandoned or that were destroyed. And we have, you know, lots of different evidence that has come uh, to light. Um, so if we look at, for example, uh, one of these um, communities that was set up along the Adriatic coast in the mid sixth century, a place called Spina, um, we see lots of evidence of, you know, how the Etruscans were great engineers, how they were able to, you know, create a community in a wetland, very clever, um, you know, relationship and understanding of their, their landscape. And this is a community that's in a very marshy area and they actually still laid it out on a grid with uh, an east-west orientation. And they used, you know, canals to drain uh, the area. And there were a series of canals, excuse me, within the grid on orthogonals and then houses built on stilts. And so it's just one example to show like how the Etruscans would adopt a, um, you know, a particular type of landscape to this very sort of ordered um, type of, of construct of the city. So we, we, we think these cities were very carefully uh, laid out according to rules of both, you know, sort of human logic and divine order. And we actually have, for example, you know, in our sources, um, you know, the idea that even Rome itself was laid out according to Etruscan rites for how to lay out a city. So the evidence is, is laid, but we have these, these sources that talk about, you know, how the Etruscans laid out or created a city, uh, which starts with creating, um, you know, using a plow to create a furrow to create the boundary of what would become a walled city. And then the plow is raised you know, every time you need to have a gate or an entry and an curia that the standard was three, three main gates uh, into the city, three main temples, you know, within um, the city, everything um, ordered to the cardinal points, you know, surrounded by fortification walls, and then with specific areas within the city for, you know, living, for work, uh, sometimes work also connected to living spaces and for religious activity. Um, so it's, it's, you know, it's, we don't often have that kind of archaeological evidence, but this site like Spina and this site of Marzoboto as well uh, that I mentioned, 
show that this is how this the city was actually uh, laid out on a grid uh, with very regular blocks, um, you know, main orthogonals and northwest intersected with um, you know three major east-west types of uh, streets. The streets still contain you know wheel marks. They were they were paved. They have uh, stepping stones. And what's very interesting is that at the intersection of the two largest streets, there's a boulder from the nearby river, uh, the Reno River that's right near there, marked with a cross facing the cardinal points. Um, and that's like, you know, very right there at the center of this particular uh, city. And so that really kind of gives us evidence of the importance of this kind of planning when you're able to you know, create a city in a new place that hasn't been occupied you know, for centuries. For the Etruscans, it was, it was like, uh, we think you know, it, was, it was sort of divinely inspired that these cities are little you know, um, microcosms of the heavens. Marso Bozzo, is that the urban center you mentioned earlier in the episode? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was. Yeah. What, was there was there anything else then on that on that note? Was there anything else you wanted to share uh, about that? They want to make sure it gets across in the episode that pertains to this century. Um. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is a a very important place because you know it gives us information that we we can't necessarily ascertain from other sites. Um, really related to like what a vi vital sort of commercial and industrial city uh, might have looked like. Um, we have actually, you know, houses that have survived. Uh, there's stone foundations mainly uh, that have survived. These houses had, you know, very uh, typical Etruscan type of roofing at this time, was tile roofing. They had wells for fresh uh, drinking water. Um, some of them were quite large. Uh, they could be between, you know, 800 to even 1,000 a, uh, a uh, square meters, so very, very large. Um, and we also have a lot of evidence about, um, you know, crafts workshops in this, in this particular site. There were workshops for making tiles for bronze, uh, bronze foundries uh, there for ironwork. Um, stone weights um, have also been found that give us a sense of how, um, you know, trading and bartering and weighting, you know, uh, uh, was done. Uh, this is the period, the 6th century, where the Etruscans are just starting to use coins. Um, you know, they haven't, uh, that has not really been a, you know, a way for, you know, a monetary uh, type of thing uh, before this particular time. Uh, but it's just beginning in this particular period uh, before we think it was mainly, you know, exchange through bartering or through hospitality between um, aristocrats. But in the archaic period, they begin to, you know, start to slowly produce coins. And again, to, to go back to that whole issue of the state, you know, there are, these are individual communities using coins and creating coins. There's no sort of state economy or state type of production. Um, it's very localized. And then they also are using, um, you know, lumps or ingots of bronze as well, different weight measures. Uh, for uh, trading, and that'll change actually in the in the next period, in the fifth century, when you're going to see more um, 
you know, coinage that is connected to a particular um, community or urban center. So yeah, Martha Goto is just really, you know, fascinating um, in that sense because of the kinds of information it can give us about daily life that we tend not to have um, in these major cities that Libby mentions because, you know, those are buried underneath the modern uh, city. Another place I wanted to mention that's really important for the archaic period that gives us a kind of glimpse into the wealth and, um, you know, just the, the kinds of resources that these uh, individuals could um, access and also this interest in monumentality. This is another key feature of the sixth century in Etruria, monumentality. Um, things just become huge and this includes um, grandiose residences as well as sanctuaries. And another really important uh, domestic site in this place, and I think I, I mentioned this in my last podcast, is this place called Pojuchiritate. Uh, That's what it's called today. We don't know its ancient um, name. It's south of Siena in the Tuscan Hills near a major river, the Ombrone River. It's a very remote uh, site today, very rural, but it has um, archaeological uh, evidence that and excavations that have been run since the, the 60s on, including all, I mean, continuing on today for over 50 years, have revealed you know, this remarkable set of structures that started in the 7th century and continued into the 6th the archaic structure, the 6th century structure, which is uh, dated to around 580 BCE, was the third residence on the site. The second burned in a fire. They rebuilt it. And it was rebuilt um, on, um, it was like a square uh, plan with four different wings, a central courtyard, uh, 60 meters by 60 meters, so huge. Um, and with a tile roof with elaborate um, terracottas. And this is the other distinguishing feature. Um, tile roofing and terracotta sculpture uh, starts in the seventh century, but really takes off um, in the sixth. One of the things that, that Pliny the Elder tells us about the Etruscan, one of the most positive things he says um, about them is that terracotta sculpture represents Etruscan art above all else. And in a place like Pojuchivitate and in many Etruscan sanctuaries, we begin to see these elaborate um, painted, decorated roofs. And one of the things that the Etruscans did that was very distinctive compared to anyone else in the Mediterranean at this time was to put sculptures on the roof, sculptures for example, freestanding, so sculptures in the round that represent ancestors or mythical beasts, maybe guardian figures, um, nearly life-size types of figures. And then they also had, um, you know, relief plaques that show different aspects of aristocratic life that would decorate uh, the eaves. Um, antifixes that would go along the edges of the roof, um, you know, right by where the rain would be coming down. And these, like, to try to reconstruct and think about what these places would have looked like, you know, it's really, really difficult because all we have are foundations. 
And that's the other challenge of Etruscan architecture is that they used ephemeral materials. They used stone for the foundations, but wood and mud brick and terracotta for the rest of the structure. So what really just survives is the roof because it's terracotta and the foundations, but really, you know, nothing uh, in between. But we have all of this, this evidence of these, these grand structures and then the same technology is used for, for sanctuaries as well in this particular period. And temples, which aren't required for a Etruscan religion, but they, they're sort of influenced from abroad by the idea of a temple as the house of a deity on earth. And they begin to, to build um, very large temples starting in uh, the sixth century in a variety of different um, sites. I'm happy to talk more about temples um, as well, but I, I just wanted to pause here just to see if you, you might have a question or, or a thought. Uh, related to temples, is there a clear pantheon um, for the Etruscans that show up by the sixth century? Absolutely, absolutely. So it's in this period, you know, um, in previous centuries, you know, obviously they were very important, you know, religious activity uh, was very important. And a lot of religious activity um, took place at sites related to sort of natural phenomena, so like mountaintops or springs or lakes. But as urbanization takes off, we then get the, the building of more you know, codified places, the building of temples, um, and many of these important ones um, you know, take place at this time. We see as well in the in the sixth century, based on um, you know inscriptions, the arrival of of some new gods, you know, and, and the idea of kind of sort of this creation of a pantheon with deities that are similar to what we might see in um, ancient Greece. But again, um, you know, there's not a one-to-one -one correlation between these, 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 these figures. So we, we have a, a god, for example, Tinia, who is similar to uh, Zeus, but not a copy. The, the figure of Heracles um, appears as well. And a lot of these, these myths and these figures, you know, are coming through and being introduced through imports. And we see, for example, the Etruscans called um, Heracles Heracle, and he possesses many of the characteristics of the Greek figure, but they considered him a god, not just a hero. And he actually has, um, you know, sites for, for worship. And there's many, many um, different stories and myths about Heracle in Etruria than what we see uh, in Greece. So a lot of adoption and adaptation of a variety of source material to express, you know, specifically local types of, of um, religious beliefs uh, at this time. We have very few um, cult statues. So if we think about that, it's, um, I mean, they just may not survive. But one very important one comes from this particular period at a sanctuary um, located, um, you know, down below the, the plateau of Orvieto. And there, this is a sanctuary actually in a necropolis, in a cemetery. There was a temple there, so different, you know, rituals and rites connected with funerary cult. 
And inside this little temple was found um, a marble statue of a new deity and an inscription on a block bronze plaque from the site um, suggests that her name was Bei, and she's thought to be a goddess of uh, death and fertility, perhaps akin to the Greek Demeter. You know, it's again hard to know, but she is a very, it's a very unusual statue, just under life size, and um, she's nude. And this is something that's, you know, distinctly Etruscan, uh, we don't see anything like this, you know, in the Greek world, although we do see this in the Near Eastern world. And so it shows that, you know, there's, uh, the Etruscans might um, have been influenced as well in this particular period. Actually, we know they were uh, influenced as well, not just by, you know, we often tend to always think of Greece, but this broader Mediterranean world, especially uh, the Phoenicians um, are influencing. and. What's even more interesting about this particular statue is it's made of Greek island marble. The craftsperson um, could have been an itinerant uh, individual from Eastern Greece. And really, I guess what's really important about the presence of this particular statue in the temple is it shows that starting in the sixth century, the Etruscans are also visualizing their deities uh, in human form. And that's going to be, you know, a tradition that will continue uh, in the future, in future centuries. Artwork came up several times in your in your responses, Alexandra. Is there is there another piece of artwork or artworks that you want to make sure gets across in this episode today that can be cited to the sixth century BCE? I mean, where do I start? There's so many um, important and distinctive um, works of art that are associated with the sixth century. And I think I, I absolutely have to mention tomb painting uh, from Tarquinia and a few other sites uh, in, um, in Etruria at this particular time. One of the, when, when people often think of, um, the sixth century, the vibrant tomb paintings of Tarquinia uh, come to mind. Uh, some of the most uh, important uh, wall paintings um, come from places that we give modern names to, like the tomb of the augurs or the tomb of the lionesses, the tomb of hunting and fishing, the tomb of the bulls, which one is the very uh, few examples we have of an actual um, mythological subject in an Etruscan tomb. These are subterranean uh, tomb paintings painted on, uh, you know, the carved out tufa walls um, over a, a little bit of light uh, plaster. And the imagery is very diverse, but they tend to focus on um, lots of banqueting, lots of aristocratic activities. But a very unusual tomb, uh, the tomb of hunting and fishing, actually references landscape activities in the Tuscan landscape. You know, people fishing and hunting and beautiful evocations of the rocky coast. And so these are, are very, very important. There's a lot of questions we have about them, like with much from Etruria, you know, in terms of what they might tell us about Etruscan beliefs. Uh, related to the afterlife, and um, I'm just going to leave it at that, um, you know, because there's there's just too much to go into there. 
Uh, but as a form of art, it's very important because we don't have a lot of painting that survives from this period, but a group of very wealthy Tarquinians wanted their tombs painted in vibrant colors. And this is very particular of the sixth century. And then one other artifact that I, that I wanna mention that is made out of terracotta that is new and kind of iconic for the sixth century are the famous couple sarcophagi that come out of the community of uh, Cervetidae. And these are in the form of a sarcophagus, but they actually functioned as urns. They had cremated remains inside, but they're very distinctive. Two of them have been found, and they show the expert skill, again, of the Etruscan craftspeople in terracotta sculpture. And what is innovative are the lids, where you have two life-size uh, individuals, a couple, we assume that they're a married couple, lying on a couch as if at a banquet. The man embraces the woman, there's lively gestures, there's great smiles on their faces. The faces aren't portraits, they, they represent a kind of um, standard, especially uh, Eastern Greek type, what we call the Ionian style. Um, but the, the bringing together of the couple, the celebrating of the banquet, showing the couple as alive and together, um, this is something that's very, very distinctly um, Etruscan in this particular period. And that motif will also continue um, these, um, you know, funerary uh, urns or sarcophagi with married couples will be a kind of common distinctive Etruscan motif uh, in later centuries um, as well. So those are just two of, you know, sort of iconic types of Etruscan art that, that come. And just one last, I just have to get this in, invented at this particular period, is the engraved bronze mirror. So many of these other cultures in the Mediterranean produce mirrors, but the Etruscans are the first to engrave on the back sides of them. And this starts in the sixth century. And this is gonna become another iconic type of Etruscan art. And also one of our major resources, especially for later time periods, about the iconography of their gods and goddesses. And so, um, you know, sure, to we do another episode, let's say, focusing on the fourth century, we would talk a lot more about these engraved bronze mirrors, which are invented and start to be produced in the later um, quarter of the sixth century. Okay, well, let's let's do one on the fourth century sometime. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds good to me. Um, so we're going to way to winding up the, the episode here. Some closing questions. Is there any last point that you think is important when it comes to funerary evidence that you want to mention that may indicate how the Etruscans lived? And why I kind of framed it like that is that um, just did a very good episode with Dr. Raphael Scopacasa, and we covered the Samnites in the Iron Age, and a lot of the evidence to understand um, the Samnites in that period of time. So in that case, that was the 9th to 6th centuries BCE. Dr. Scopacasa cited funerary evidence, and you brought up funerary evidence as well in some of your responses. Is there, is there anything else that you want to highlight that you think is um, very pertinent to this topic today? Well, the funerary evidence, I mean, in 
in terms of the, the amount of evidence we have about the Etruscans, we mainly have funerary and religious evidence. Um, and the funerary evidence is absolutely critical for us to understand all aspects of their daily life because you know, they took so many artifacts with them uh, to the tombs. And so, um, you know, artifacts originally for private use, for lavish banquets, it just gives us a sense of, um, you know, some of their different cultural traditions. And it also gives us a lot of information about their connections to the broader Mediterranean world, because these tombs are also filled with many different types of imports. There's a famous tomb, for example, from Vulci called the, the Isis tomb that, you know, is full of things from Egypt and, you know, made out of, um, you know, gold. And so it, it gives us um, all kinds of information, uh, the tomb artifacts um, about the Etruscans, about their status, about their connections uh, to this, this broader world, about the sophisticated nature of the crafts that they also were uh, responsible for. So that combined with the, you know, the evidence from the sanctuaries really you know, kind of fleshes out this picture. And to add to that now, this evidence from, you know, from sites that we can actually you know, see, domestic sites like Pogicivitate or Spina or Martaboto or another place, Aparosa, we really have this, this really, um, broad picture of the sixth century as a period of enormous growth, of sophistication, of regionalism, but also, you know, Etruscan cultural identity united by language, things of that sort. So it's, it's really important uh, in that sense, this century uh, for the Etruscans. You mentioned earlier that uh, they might have I get the sense, uh, inspired some urban planning in, in Rome. I'm not sure what century that was. You can bring that up in your response as you feel necessary. Does, does their relationship with Rome at all come up in this century that we're speaking about today in any way? Absolutely. So uh, in this particular century is when we actually have um, Etruscan rulers in Rome, Etruscan kings, the, the famous Tarquin dynasty is ruling Rome. Um, from the mid period um, on. And, you know, they're the ones when the Republic is founded in 509 BCE, um, the end of the sixth century, um, you know, they, they, the Romans have basically expelled uh, the Etruscans. And so there's a lot of information about the, uh, that's a whole nother episode too, uh, the Etruscans uh, and Rome. Uh, one, um, our, our, one of our um, sources, for example, Livy tells us about an Etruscan sculptor, Vulca, who, one of the few names we have of an Etruscan sculptor, who was brought to Rome under the Tarquins to work on one of the most famous temples in Rome, the Temple of Jupiter on the Capitoline Hill, which is actually um, you know, a kind of mix of Etruscan Greek in design and that's connected to the Etruscan period uh, in Rome. And so there's a lot to really uh, unpack there. But yes, the Etruscans are said to have drained the forum, done a lot of engineering work in Rome. Um, so they have a very important impact on how the city itself was shaped in the sixth century. And is it known in uh, somewhat of a summary way in closing for the sake, sake of time, how they uh, how they, they came to um, uh, to be in Rome? 
how the Etruscans came to be in Rome. Yes. Um, we have, you know, we have legends that talk about um, the arrival of um, this uh, Tarquinian family, um, um, Tar the uh, Lucumo, this, this man from Tarquinia, and his wife Tanaquil, you know, come to Rome. They, they, the omens are all very positive, and, and they, you know, they eventually just become um, um, rulers there. Um, and these are all Roman sources. We have, you know, so it's it's hard to extrapolate, um, you know, you know exactly what is legend, what is what is fact. Uh, but yes, we have this, you know, we have information about the setting up of what's called the Tarquin Dynasty uh, in Rome, you know, through both um, archaeological evidence and our later literary evidence that we could explore in, you know, a later episode. So yeah, there's lots to to talk about uh, there as well. And then of course, the it's just an example too of kind of where, you know, the Etruscans are in the Mediterranean and in, a, in the on the Italian peninsula in the sixth century that they are, you know, um, important in Rome, they're important in the Bay of Naples area, they're important in the north, they're important in the east. Um, they're pretty much, it's, it's really why, you know, the sixth century is often considered to be um, sort of the zenith of their power um, in on the peninsula. Yeah, and if I were sadly, you know, like as we move into the fifth century, it's often seen as a period of crisis, mainly because you know there's some devastating political defeats um, of some of the coastal um, uh, cities, as you have the rising powers of, of places in Sicily like Syracuse. Uh, for example, and the, the and the loss of the Tyrrhenian uh, shipping route. So, um, so the sixth century is sort of this period that straddles, you know, a kind of period of crisis a little bit later, and then the great growth that starts in the seventh. And so many things sort of come to the fore in this period, which is why I picked it because I mean it's almost impossible to to really summarize uh, this period in in an hour. Um, there's just so much going on. Yeah, and I'm glad we covered this this century in this conversation today. And if if I recall, the um, Tarquins was was covered in a previous episode for everyone listening um, with Dr. Gary Forsyth. We covered uh, when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. So that's findable online as well. Um, Alexandra, it's great chatting with you again today. I look forward to our next chat in the future. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Have a great day. So again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Carpino co-edited and contributed a chapter to, it's entitled A Companion to the Etruscans. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Alexandra and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.